0: Warrior, we find oftentimes the portrait of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, um, as, as one who is portrayed um, that is not a biblical view. And so what we find uh, here, especially in the beginning of the gospel going out to the nations, is we find the Holy Spirit is a warrior. He's calling and commanding his most elite men through a local church at Antioch to face and conquer adversaries. And he's rescuing one man, a powerful man, an influential man from hell. And so let's look at what God's word says this morning uh, to the church and from God's holy word. It says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And then they arrived at Salamis, and they proclaimed the Word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who was summoned, who summoned. Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of, of the Lord. And may God bless the reading and preaching of His Holy Word. Amen. Amen. Well, I've stated the point of this text already, but let's just be reminded of it. The Holy Spirit is a warrior. And He's a warrior that is commanding, He is calling men through the local church, in particular this church at Antioch, to face and to conquer adversaries in the land of this world, it's a conquest, and he rescues an influential man from hell. And this reminds me immediately of being in India at one point, and we found that most of the time the governmental authorities never bothered you if you were simply helping the orphans and you were rescuing them um, from, from the train stations or, or wherever that they were abandoned. But immediate persecution came about when you were actually evangelizing the powerful and the influential. And so you can see immediately here that the church going to the nations is is going directly towards all men, great and small, great and small. So you have those who look influential and are influential and those who are not so much. And God is after every man. God is after the souls of those. And not merely as the, um, the evangelism training programs out there that are, that are often very unhelpful that train people to go out and say, well, what, what, what will it take to go to heaven? Or, or the focus is heaven. But here the focus is, is not heaven. The focus is rescuing a man from hell. And the reality today is that men have lost the fear of God And really the fear of hell that goes with it. The fear of facing the wrath of Almighty God. And this is what has brought about awakenings in people's lives through the yesteryear. Especially during the great awakenings that we look back on during Edwards at Northampton. And many people will mock that and say, well, you know, was that really awakening and things like that? Well, you can read the histories and, and you can judge for yourselves. But what we find is... There was a movement of God's spirit as a warrior to transform people's lives and no explanation could be given. They couldn't say, well, it was the evangelism program or it was the strategy of the church or it was the ingenuity of this person. None of that could be said because God will not share his glory with another. And perhaps you're here today and you can bear witness to the fact that the reason you came to believe in Jesus is really unexplainable other than just the power of God. That the Holy Spirit rested you and made you believe in Him and rescued you from hell. And the gratitude flowing from your life is simply unexplainable apart from a work of Almighty God. And that's how it should be. It should be that there should be anything that could point to your salvation and your conversion other than that God simply had mercy on you. I can say in my own life, I began to read the Bible, beginning in Genesis, and for whatever reason, I believed it. For many years, didn't believe it. For many years, I, I, I lied about reading it to people. And God arrested my heart to simply reading it. It's because so many people gave me Bibles. I looked like I needed Bibles. And, and so I finally took the hint and began to read the Bible. And the Word of God's powerful to do that. But what's interesting about our text, <clears throat> many things are... But what's interesting is God's very serious against those who would keep people from hearing the word of God. It's a fearful thing. If anything would come out of the text to be in a position that you would stand in the way of someone who is seeking to hear the teaching of Christ. They would get in the way of God's work. The good news is God will not allow anything. To keep his elect people chosen before the foundation of the world from coming to him. The security of the fact that it will not be a preacher and it will not be a church and it will not be any human being. That can possibly prevent you from trusting in Christ because it is grace that has brought you to Christ. It is grace that has brought us together today. It is the grace of God that has made us a church. And it's not because this person or that person did anything. It is because God did the work through man, yes. But ultimately, we would say God did the work. God's the one to get the glory. He doesn't share his glory with another. And we ought to be very careful to make sure we're always pointing up to the Lord. You'll notice in these stained glass windows all around, it looks like an arrow pointing up. And it's because we want to point to Jesus Christ. We want to point to God. We want to point to the Holy Spirit as the one who has done it and the one who will do it. And we trust in the promises of God that he will accomplish all that he has promised in his word in this world. We look out at this world today and we may seem hopeless and we may be discouraged. We have to be reminded again of the sovereign grace of God that brought us individually to him to believe in Him and and to know Him. And that should change the way we're going to look at the future of humanity. It'll change the way we we view the present time, but it'll also change the way we're going to view our children, grandchildren, and going forth. It changes the way we realize this world is our Father's world and our Father being God. This is not Satan's world. Satan has violated and robbed people in this world. But this is God's world. This is God's land. And we are called to go forth as a church on conquest in order to bring the gospel to the nations, to bring the gospel to people, making unbelievers to become mature believers in Jesus Christ. Now, I am so off from my sermon, but I just felt that that should be something said. Uh, but we will we will hit this. Um, so what we see here, what we see again, is Holy Spirit as a warrior. And walking through the text, we see in the first aspect, we note that He is a person, and He calls people, and He speaks. So He's not a force. He's not some um, uh, some type of a a uh, Star Wars force or some Middle Eastern type of euphoria. But he's a real person revealed as such in Scripture. He's a, he's a warrior of a person and he's calling people and he's, he's here speaking to them. And you see that in the text where uh, it says they're worshiping the Lord with fasting. And that shows that they're there with a seriousness about their worship. They're there with a fear of God. And that's largely what's lost, and it gets lost in each generation, but it will not be finally lost, and it will not—it will not even be decreasing in the world. Um, I was encouraged by a uh, answer question and answer session through near recently that was take place out of, I think it was Kingsford Conference in California. Um, so there's some good stuff that happens in California, but anyway, the. Uh, there was a, a, a statement made by one of the panelists who said, uh, just put out the question. I think it was Stephen Nichols. And he said, where's Herod's kingdom today? And where's God's kingdom? Well, obviously, that question right away raises the, the, the reality. Herod's kingdom has gone. God's kingdom is still here. God's kingdom is still growing. So where's Herod's kingdom today immediately tells us and helps us to look at the perspective of the world as, as we're looking at all these kingdoms that fall throughout the world. And governments will rise and fall, but God's kingdom is promised to grow. And trust me, you want to be part of that kingdom. You want to be part of that rule because that's the rule that lasts. And to be part of the United States of America or to be a citizen of Singapore or to be be in some other place that you might hail as your citizenship pales in comparison. It will one day be gone. But God's kingdom will stand and it will stand forever. And we see there's people from all nations here already. It says the church at Antioch, you're not, you don't have a central church. Perhaps you were taught... In Roman Catholicism, there was kind of some central church in Rome. The the Bible never teaches there was a, a central church that ruled over other churches. It never taught of denominational kind of things or conventions that were ruling and sending the missionaries. None of that is in the Bible. And you see a church at Antioch, a local body. And if there was a church that would have been a candidate for a central body, it would have been the Mother Church in Jerusalem. And that's only because that's where the gospel's going out from. And we're going we see that the gospel's spreading from there. But when we read Acts, Acts is, is, not, is not our story. It's, it's God's story of the apostles and the Holy Spirit giving us a testimony of what God promised to do in this time, and He did do it. So that we might have courage to do what we're called to do in our time according to the Great Commission. Acts eight is not saying to us to uh, go witness to Jerusalem or go witness to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. That's, that's, the, that's the Acts 1.8 outline of the text. But we are called the Great Commission to go to the ends of the earth on the basis of a commission given to the representative apostles to go into the world and reach the nations. But we're not called to move to Jerusalem and go witness there. Some people may because they're part of the nations, but it doesn't give them a one up. We are called to witness here and to go wherever the spirit commands us to go, just like these men. So we can apply it. But this is their story to encourage us that God is faithful and he's faithful. To this, this church at Antioch, this one church is there in Antioch. And in that church, it says there were prophets and teachers. You say, well, are there prophets today? No. Well, there are. they are false prophets. But the the prophets are said to be in the Bible that which the, the church was built on, a foundation of the apostles and prophets. And it says that God gave apostles and he gave prophets and he gave evangelists and he gave pastors and he gave teachers. And we can identify very clearly pastors, teachers, and evangelists. That effectively are gifted and are used in the church today as instruments of Holy Spirit to teach so that we are not tossed about by every wind of doctrine. So that we stay hard to the truth and we don't get led astray by lies. So those are there. But the prophets here in particular, that the church has gifted the church with at this time, are going to be instrumental with the apostles in giving us what we have here as the New Testament. And there were prophets and there were uh, teachers. And they also acted in a way of preserving the church. For we learned back in the previous chapters, there was a prophet named Agabus who warned of a famine that was going to occur in the whole world, the whole Roman world at the time. And so we see that the prophets were used to do that in the first century. So you have, a, you have prophets and teachers and included in this list, you have Barnabas whom we know from the past is a son of preaching, the son of exhortation, the son of encouragement. We have Simeon, who is called Niger. The word Niger means black. He's most likely a black man. We have African Christianity immediately brought into this. And you'll find that the next person that's named, may be related, Lucius of Cyrene. And Cyrene is of the northern part of Africa, also would have been dark-skinned there, and would have been considered of the same, perhaps, lineage there of, of Simeon. Now, what's interesting about this is many, many scholars indicate that Simeon may have been the, the same Simeon of Cyrene that helped carry the cross for Jesus in the Gospels. Now, we don't have any conclusive proof of that, but we do have at least some historical data that people believe that. Well, what we, what we know, though... Is right away as the gospel is going to the nations. You have African Christianity right away in the forefront. You have you have Barnabas, and then you have Simeon and Lucius of Cyrene, and then you have a person named Manian, and he is called here a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And some believe that this this one. Um, was a half-brother of Herod. Some believe that he was in the same household. Some translations reflect that. But the idea is that this person was very close to Herod the Tetrarch. And who was Herod the Tetrarch? Well, if you read the Gospel accounts, Herod the Tetrarch is the man who beheaded John the Baptist. So... What's amazing about this is you have somebody who was so close to that man. Who was brought out of Herod's kingdom. Again, where's Herod's kingdom? Nowhere to be found. He was brought out of Herod's kingdom to be in a forever kingdom. And that can be said for all of us. We're brought out of the domain of darkness and we're put in the kingdom of his beloved son. The son of his love, literally, Colossians says. And then you have Saul. Saul who is persecuting the church, who's responsible for making families um, separated, taking husbands from wives and wives from husbands, from orphaning children. And he is saved by the mercy and grace of God. And he's used to write the majority of the New Testament letters we're reading. This man is chosen out to be an instrument to carry the gospel to the nations. And it is primarily through this man's ministry that we see God's promise to bring the gospel to the end of the earth according to Matthew 24 and verse 14 and that the end would come. And the end to come there that's related in Matthew 24 for is the end of Jerusalem and the temple in its first wipe off the map. That doesn't mean that there's not an application for the entire world as we know it to come. But that was being spoken that God was going to destroy Jerusalem as the gospel reached the end of the known world as they had it here. That's what Acts is about. So you have these... Five mentioned, and it says while they were worshiping the Lord with fasting, fasting means they're going without food. They're they're practicing largely what it said. When the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. And they they were giving up their daily food so they would give themselves to God in worship and prayer. They would rather be in the house of the Lord than at a feasting table, if it meant difference between the two, and they were serious about it. They couldn't. Their food was to do the will of God at this point, and and let us just remember: this is a local church that fears God, a local church that has a seriousness about their worship, a local church that you can tell has an awe of who God is, and really, that's. That's primary in our lives and in our gathering today is that there should be a sense of Almighty God among the people of God. It shouldn't be a flippant thing, it's a serious matter. That we're coming together to worship the Lord. And it's in the context of that type of the fear of God, not a fear that makes you draw away, it's a fear that has drawn you to Him. And if you have that fear, it's because God put it there. It's a miracle. God has put that there. And when God's people are worshiping that way, it's in this context that the Holy Spirit speaks. And he says here, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And obviously he's speaking through to the church, but primarily to these prophets and teachers who are going to then fast. Continue fasting and continue praying. And it says they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. So these prophets and teachers ordain, if you would, these men, these two men with the consent of the church. All are in agreement. There's no disagreement on the matter. They're completely unified. They believe the Holy Spirit's setting them apart and they are ordained accordingly and they send these two men forth because the Holy Spirit spoke to them, and the Holy Spirit called them, and He chose His men, just like in any situation. That these men are chosen for a specific mission—they are the elite. Think about how we might do, or how some might do it today. Um, well, let's find a few people we can expend of. We might even think of a few people we'd like to expend of, right? But they don't think of that. They say, let's take our greatest men, our most elite men, our strongest warriors, and send them for the greatest task. And they send them out. Again, not a convention, not an association, not an organization outside the church, not a central church anywhere, but this local body at Antioch. And so by way of application, it's it's very simple. This is the example we are given as to how the gospel went to the nations as the Holy Spirit worked through a local body there at Antioch to reach the nations. And it should be at least that we have a seriousness about our worship. It it doesn't mean that that we have to uh, fast every week. It doesn't. Mean that we have to do exactly what they're doing, but there should be a sense in which we're serious about it. And to speak very plainly about this, um, uh, just in pastoral capacity here, and not in a legalistic sense, but ask yourselves the question: Are you coming to church, and and from the way you're coming? The way you're presenting yourself, what you're presenting to others, but most of all, what you're presenting before the Lord, does it display the fear of God? Does it display that you really believe you're coming into the presence of God or not? I think it'll change. I mean, if you were if you were invited To go to somewhere that you found just historic and important and before a great world leader and you were called, how would you act? How would you how would you display yourself there? What would you do to prepare to be there? How would you enter? I think those are questions they knew they were in the presence of God. They were worshiping the Lord. It's like the old man who said to the pastor on the way out the door, well, I didn't like this, and I didn't didn't like that. And the pastor responded very uh, quickly and without much thought. He said, well, that's good because we didn't come to worship you. You see, there's a difference between a man and a woman or a, a young person who comes to church and understands we're here for God. The presence of Almighty God, we are charged From pulpit to pew, all the way through, we are in the presence of Almighty God and will stand before the judge of the living and the dead and answer for how we have conducted ourselves in the area of our gifting and what we've used of gifts and how we have operated in this world. But especially how we have treated his people and how we have treated his word and how we have treated the things of God among the people of God week in and week out. I think there needs to be a seriousness to the way we worship and it ought to begin. It ought to begin before we ever get here. It ought to begin with our daily walk, governing ourselves well and realizing this is a special time. But that special time is always reflected in the fact that we have secret times with the Lord. We have times we've spent with God. Everybody, all of us have the inclination to want to tell people how much we prayed and what we've read and all these things. But you know what? You can lose your reward real quick in this world by getting your reward in this world. We're called to give ourselves in secret to God and he'll reward us openly. We're not called to put ourselves on display in this world and make ourselves to seem great. There's a sense in which there really are no great man. There's only a great God. But when we do look at this text, we do see that there are some that are just very influential and God is going after them. But it's because he is great and he can bring the greatest of the earth to their knees and trust him. Well, that's what I want to say on this first few verses. These first five verses is what what an awesome thing. The local church, how the local church is viewed and how God raises up the local body and makes the local body the place in which He is going to go on conquest like Joshua did going into the world. And Paul and Barnabas are like Caleb and Joshua. When the ten spies say in unbelief that we are scared to death to go into the land, we see Joshua and Caleb are scared to death not to go. Not to face the enemy. And And so far apart from the spineless, lackadaisical, foolish people in the world that claim to be Christians and say there's a lion in the wilderness and we can't go out. By basically saying, if we do that, it will bring more problems on ourselves. If we do that, it will bring more conflict. If we do that, that's going to make our lives harder. And the fact of the matter is, the idol of those people is nothing but their own comfort and their own happiness. We need men, women, and young people today who actually are willing to go on conquest for God because they believe the Great Commission's promise. They believe God has promised to be with them wherever they go. And therefore, they're not going to shrink back from bringing the gospel if the Holy Spirit has sent them to do it. And they're not going to be basing their decisions as a church on if it's going to bring them away from conflict and make their lives at ease. They're going to do what is right because they fear God rather than men. That impacts us. We need to be told that because our flesh wants To comfort ourselves and to keep ourselves out of trouble and to basically have just a quiet little life. But we're not called to that. We are called to bring the gospel to nations because people are headed to hell. And if we really believe that, it's going to look different. We're going to be concerned about their souls. We're going to be concerned about where they're headed, their destiny. We're not going to be out there giving little cute little tracks saying, here's how you can go to heaven. How about, here's how you don't go to hell? Hell is at stake. It's separation from God in one sense, but the presence of Almighty Wrath. It is what humanity, in the midst of its worst torments, given over to what they want. You say, I'm free today. I want to be free. I want to do what I want to my body. I want to do what I want in my home. I want to have as many many partners in my life as I want to have. I want to rule things the way I want. I don't want police in my life. I don't want law in my life. I want lawlessness. Leave us alone is the idea of the world. And they would say, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. No, you are a slave to sin. You are captured by it to do the will of the devil. You are headed towards a ceaseless amount of being given over to that type of torture. The fact of the matter is, living in that type of life, I've tasted of that type of life. I've tasted of that darkness. I'm here to bear witness to you today. It is no fun to be spending your life constantly having to watch over your back for the next person that's going to basically do you wrong and and the next deal that has gone bad. I'm telling you today as a witness to the fact that darkness leads to more and more slavery to sin and you're going to be in the midst of people who care nothing about you. And it was because there was a man in a pulpit that God used by the Holy Spirit to share with me his life into drugs, his life into crime. You don't have to have that story, but but it identified with me. And he's in a prison cell. A guy's throat gets slashed right next to him. God saves that man out of that. Imagine hell. The worm doesn't die. Some people take it as the worm that's just gnawing at you of every sin, every guilt, Everything that that men hate and they're trying to get away from, they want to get away from God, but they can't. And God has sent worms there to basically devour them eternally, constantly, and to knead at them and constantly bring the guilt to mind and bring the shame to mind and bring the conviction to mind. But they can't get away from it and they want to die, but they can't die. And they're in complete darkness and they can't see, but they can hear it all. They can hear the law being proclaimed over their lives. They can hear you shall have no other gods before me. They can hear honor my day. They can hear don't take my name in vain. They can hear don't make idols that you bow down to. They immediately are convicted again and again and again. They've done it all, but they can't reverse it. They're enslaved for eternity. And there's nothing will change it. They can hear over and over again. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Honor your father and mother. Oh, I have not honored them. And they will spend eternity with worms gnawing at them of that very fact. And they will have lied and bear a false witness. And they would have coveted. And they would have broken all God's commandments. And those commandments will haunt them forever. Think about. That's where men are going. Flames. As it says. And it can be. Literal flames, but the idea of the literal flame is not as bad as the fact of the spiritual reality of the burning heat of the conscience that is absolutely completely being surrounded and encaptured by guilt and shame and a hatred for God. And they can't get away from it. They can never die and they can never escape it. And so you see out in the world. Everybody hailing their fists and saying, we want freedom. We want freedom to do what we want, how we want. And that's exactly what God will give those who are going to hell. They will have the freedom to do whatever they want, to whomever they want, however they want. But they will never escape the conscience and the guilt and the shame and the worm that doesn't die and the flames that is not quenched. What an awful tragedy. And if we believed our friends Our family and our community is headed that direction. We would not want that on our worst enemy. We would not want that on our worst friend, let alone our spouses, let alone on our children, let alone on people in our church. We want none of that for anybody. And it ought to cause us to have a desire to go up against what makes us uncomfortable and what makes us to be concerned in our lives. Now, let me say this. They obeyed the Lord. Look at the word so in verse 4. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the Word of God. Notice this is central. They proclaimed the Word of God. In verse 7, you have them seeking to hear the Word of God. And at the end, you have this man believing the teaching of, Of the Lord. And so you have the Holy Spirit as a warrior. He has now called and now he's commanding and they are going first to the synagogues of the Jews because that's where the law was entrusted to be. That's where God's word was entrusted to be. And there's so much, so much controversy over today, the law of God. Well, let me ask you today. Would you like a world that is ruled by man's law? Uh, It was Steve Lawson who said uh, the world is not run by democracy. It's run by theocracy, meaning God is sovereign over the whole earth. Whether whether one likes it or not, God's the one that rules good and evil. He brings everything to his need. He's the one who's controlling the things that happen in this world for his glory and the good of his people. If you have God's law, you have a limited number of laws. If God's law is in the heart, you have peace, you have security, you have people getting educated, you have institutions raised up, you have mercy ministries. Every place the gospel goes, it changes countries, it changes lives, it changes uh, families, it it does the work. But when you have man's law, you have books even in our own country after book, after book, after book, of law, after law, after law, that some people say you commit, the average person commits five felonies in a single day without even knowing it. That's surely a hyperbole, but we know the fact of the matter is it's because what's being said is that we've made so many laws, we've lost track of all the laws. And some people say, well, if you're in a place where, uh, uh, you know, there's no law, that's a horrible place. And it is. But you know what's worse? One has said, being in a place where there's a innumerable amount of lawyers, right? People that basically can dig up whatever law they want to serve whatever purpose to win their case. And it becomes not about who's, what's actually really right and wrong. It comes, it comes about It's a profession. It's a profession to basically just win arguments. Isn't that the culture we're living in today? Everybody arguing, everybody angry. And basically the whole idea is just not what's right and what's wrong but just win the argument. And then law after law is being passed and the Supreme Court continues to be looked at as basically a legislative body in our nation. And law after law is being decided based not on justice and righteousness and on the Ten Commandments behind their backs but based on politics. So Choose at any nation who you'll serve. That's how Joshua ends. You know, when Joshua ends, it says right before that, it says not one word that God had promised had failed to be accomplished. And so you see this, the land is taken, the promise fulfilled, the covenant's fulfilled, but yet it ends with something's not right. There are actually idols in the heart that haven't been conquered. So there's a clue. You read through Acts and you find that Something's not right. You get to Acts 28 and you see that Paul is witnessing to the end of the earth. He's made it to Rome. The gospel's gone there. And you expect the end to come and it did. But something's not right. He's on house arrest there in Rome. He's still not being treated by the authorities how he should be. Something is unfinished. Unfinished. But yet there's an aspect of a completeness because the gospel did go exactly where God said it would. But you read Acts and you understand something still to come, something still to be done. And we have the whole Bible. So what I'm not saying is this. I'm not saying you need Acts 29. That's actually completely contradictory to what the book's about. It is a complete testimony to be encouragement to us to go reach the nations. What we do know is, is that God would take a local church and still send missionaries in the world to conquer the idols of men's heart and bring them to Christ. And it won't fail. It's not like that God's wringing his hands about will this work or that the church will be sitting there thinking, is this going to end well? Well, yes, it's going to end well. Not only is it going to end well, but it is going to be. An absolute romance along the way. We have our Lord with us. We have, we have battle stories week after week of what God has done to rescue sinners. We have the, the increasing aspect that the kingdom has been planted as a seed, oftentimes in martyrs' blood, and it grows. It was said, um, I didn't get to share last week, when James was executed, that we have historical data that's very credible that says the executioner who took the head off that man was converted soon after. You have stories like in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress where you have Christian who is there and he's taken to the Vanity Fair, uh, the city with all its wares being purchased. And him and Faithful are there and they suffer greatly, but Faithful is killed. And it is out of Faithful that Hopeful comes to Faith. And that city, if you go forward into Christiana's story and tells about the wife who followed her husband in faith, you hear her story, and it was much easier for her to believe and her children after Bunyan was gone because of the work that was done in those places. And now you go to Vanity Fair during Christiana's time and you find there are some people here that worship the Lord. The kingdom is promised to grow. The world is not going through some spattered mess to which the gospel is just showing up just because it has enough strength in one place. The gospel is growing throughout the world and it will grow and it will ultimately be that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord. And we will find that the church, the kingdom of God representative on earth, will grow to the point where the gospel spreads as far as the waters cover the sea. Now you can't believe that. By looking at human flesh. And the way of human mind. You can only believe that. Because you believe the Bible. And you fear God. But in the human aspect as well. You can't expect that. If you're not willing. To get out of your comfort. And bring the gospel to lost people. And that's not a, a, a motivational speech. To make someone feel guilty. Oh, I need to do this that. It's just put your faith in the fact that the Holy Spirit is a warrior that you can't avoid. He will call men. He will raise up. He will set apart. He will send. And he will see to it that these things will happen. Now, as we move to the last part, we see the whole island they went through. And so this is where many would say that the West is being reached for the gospel. This is where Europe is. Um, is uh, primarily being touched by the gospel. A certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, the son of Jesus, it says, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul, and he sought to hear the word of God. So here's an influential man. He hears evidently what Barnabas and Saul have been teaching, and he says, I need to hear him." And he summons them. That's the only way he knows how to work. He's a powerful man, and he summons to hear the word of God. But then enters the antagonist. Delimus the magician. That's the meaning of his name. Some would take this to be. As um, is, is stated. Is applied to Mohammedans. At the time. This is pre. would be pre Islam. But it would be those. Largely representative of that. And. This man would be. Largely out of the Turkish empire. There would be practice of the occult and and basically science that would endeavor to hide truth and to basically make everything mysteries, not in the sense of biblical mystery that's unveiled, but in the sense of everything mysterious. You'll see religions out there all the time like that, like the Masonics. Right. You have the secret things. Right. Or you don't have to go even to the Masonics. You can go to all kinds of things where they have secret religion, right? Well, what's different about Christianity? We publish it. There was a time in which it was held back for the purposes in which Jesus said to keep quiet as there was processes and things to take place for him to go to the cross, but no more. The gospel has now been sent forth that every man will be called to repent and will be published in the world not outside of our comfort, that we would go forth proclaiming the message of the gospel. We are not part of a secret religion or a secret society. All such things are evil. We are called to be public theologians in the world proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. You you can try to avoid it. You can try to have it comfortable. But I, I believe and i found... Oftentimes, we're the most miserable when we're trying to basically be the most comfortable and we're trying to protect ourselves and we're trying to isolate ourselves. Think about the people that are still housed up in their homes because they are scared to death of a disease still to this day. You tell me if they're happy. And if they're free. Or are they enslaved? And are they miserable? maybe someone tuning in listening to that. And I don't say that to your shame. I understand. I comprehend. I know it feels that I live in the same flesh that you do. I understand there's a lot of reasons. I don't want to get out and, and do what I'm supposed to do. Or hit into this pulpit each week. Or to go and to share with somebody. I mean, it would be a lot more comfortable to not do it on one hand. But God, who puts the Spirit in us, won't let us be comfortable by protecting ourselves. We find the greatest comfort in proclaiming our Lord. We find the greatest peace in gathering with His people. We find the greatest long-term happiness in having lived a life that actually said, I'm going to risk all for Christ. We can't be afraid of a disease. We can't be afraid of death. We can't be afraid of people. We can't be afraid of governments. We are called to serve the Lord. We are called to make him our home and stay. We should rather be in the household of our God than in the tents of wickedness any day. And the biggest tent of wickedness is our own lives if we hide there. Well, look at this man. You know, what's worse is not somebody hiding that, what's worse is somebody trying to hide the truth from others. Oh, to be a position on judgment day that you're guilty of this. Thanks be to God, he's merciful, even to this man. Because it doesn't say the judgment's permanent. He's trying to hide and keep the counsel and turn him away from the faith. He is perverting truth in order to make sure this man doesn't believe he's doing everything he can. He's raising all the questions. He's perverting and making crooked the straight ways of the Lord. And what does Paul do? Well, what's amazing is not what Paul does. The amazing thing here is what the Holy Spirit does. Now, just think back before you walked in here today. How did you view the Holy Spirit versus how this text views the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is viewed here? Look at what it says to be filled with the Holy Spirit. How would you view being filled with the Holy Spirit before you walked in the door? We think being full of the love and the joy and the patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It seems to be a happy person, a very encouraging person, someone who doesn't say anything bad to anybody. Here it says a man filled with the Holy Spirit looked at the man. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does he say? What comes out? He looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil. Well, that changes things, doesn't it? That changes the way I view the Holy Spirit. A lot of people in our community view the Holy Spirit. They have to have some feeling. They have to have some emotion. We got to sing so many songs and repeat the same thing about 20 times. And all of a sudden we've worshiped in the Spirit. Well, here, somebody filled with the Spirit looks at a false prophet and says, you son of the devil, you enemy of righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. He could have just stopped at that, right? But he's full of the Holy Spirit. And he's a warrior. He is not merely... Going to go in and basically tap the enemy on the shoulder. He is going to take the head off the enemy and make sure he doesn't rise again. He says, You son of the devil, he says that you are full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight path of the Lord? He closes the sale. he finishes the job. And don't you know that the confidence that rose up, that God will who began a good work in you, will bring to completion of the day of Christ? That confidence that Paul said in Philippians 1.6, out of joy, don't you know that this is where it rose from? It rose out of the fact that the Holy Spirit, when He fills a man, will conquer every adversary outside of him. And therefore, we can have confidence He will conquer all of the sin and all the idolatry and all the faults within us. And many people out there today, well, it's not possible to bring the nations to a point to where the law reigns. Well, these are the same people that don't believe it's possible to overcome anger. It's possible to overcome lack of attending the body of Christ. It's possible to overcome swearing. It's possible to overcome lusting. It's possible to overcome murder. It's possible to overcome any sin. They don't believe that. So, why should they believe that God would conquer the nations? The Holy Spirit's a warrior. He goes forth no matter what was seeking to stop. And isn't this good news? Because many a times you may look back at life, maybe friends and family that have gone on and they've died in their sins and they've gone to hell. And the reality is you think, oh, if I could have said more, oh, if I could have done more, oh, if I could have stopped them." Well, the surety is God will lose none of those he chose before the foundation of the world. The guilt is not on your shoulders. If there's something that you said or didn't say and you need to confess that to God, he's faithful and he's just to forgive you and cleanse you of all well unrighteousness. righteousness. He is just, meaning that when Christ died on the cross, justice was served on your behalf. And perhaps you didn't say what you need to say. And perhaps you said something you shouldn't have. And the good news is he's just. He punished the sin. And all you've got to do is confess the sin, and He'll forgive you of the sin, and you don't have to go through life with any more guilt or any more shame, and you don't ever have to go to hell with it. And isn't that good? I mean, isn't that great to know that the worst that can happen to this world will only send us to heaven? That the persecutor's sword will simply send us to the Father's arms? That the worst thing that can happen to us can actually take us closer to God? That's the type of confidence that's needed for you to grow holy. You see, it's the big picture that goes down to the small picture. And the world isn't changed by simply going out and trying to take on hell with a water pistol, the world is changed by taking on your own sins with sanctification and grace. In the power of the spirit by the word of God in your prayer closets and in the word of God being read in your homes and in the singing of his praise in your lives. That is where the confidence comes from. These big stories lead to your story being developed over time so that you're not going to be a slave to that sin. And you don't have to hear the inner quarries of, of constant worming of guilt. It can be free today. You can be free. You don't have to be enslaved. You can be set free, and it's by one thing it's not by the miracle. But notice what is given credit in the end here the Holy Spirit's warrior movement through these two men that He called, sent, commanded, and equipped and filled. It is at the end of the day the teaching of the Lord. It is the word of God. Sanctify me by your truth, David said, for your word is truth. Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer that your word is truth. And I'm getting mixed up. Psalm 119 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? But by keeping it according to your word. Jesus prayed, John 17, sanctify them by your truth, your word. Is truth At the end of the day, this man who is rescued in spite of a powerful magician that's trying to turn him away. Says, yes, he saw the miracle, which is the sign of an apostle. We don't need that miracle today. We have this miracle that's testified. Chapter 12, verse 12, 2 Corinthians said there were certain signs of the apostles performed. Why? To validate this is true. And when he saw the miracle with the teaching... It was the teaching of the Lord that made the grounds. Look at that word for. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. We could bring evidence after evidence after evidence. We could say the majesty of the style. Some people just love to read the word because it's so majestic and so otherworldly. But that's not what convinces you to live your life or to trust the word of God what does it is that the Holy Spirit makes you astonished at the teaching of the Lord. You read a text like this and it's no longer just a text. It's a commission. It's a commission to holiness. And the Holy Spirit sends individual Christians on that commission before he sends us out to build a rescue world. So the question today is not, you need to go out and take on the world. The world is defined in first John. And it says this church, it says the world, all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, desire of the eyes, the desire of the flesh, the pride of possessions, right? It's, it doesn't have a love of the father in it. That's all that's the world is defined. Are you conquering that? Are you conquering that? If you trust Christ, not only can you, but you will. Because he seals you to the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. And he uses the means of the teaching of the word to take you a step closer in sanctification and holiness and perfection. Not that you will be perfect on this side. The same people that are that are uh, so skeptical about a world that can be made perfect. Christian are also very despairing that they themselves can actually look Christian. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about, is it possible for a man to live for God? And the scripture doesn't say, not only is it possible, but because of God's sovereignty, it is promised. Get that truth. And stop living in any way like I might be inclined to live. And to hang my head because the world is so dark at this time. Keep your chin up towards God and trust his promise. Trust his testimony. Don't give up on these things. Realize the word of God and the spirit together. The spirit being a warrior to take this teaching and astonish your life and the world by it. And may it be so in Jesus name. Let's stand together. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to deliver that which you have taught me in this week. I pray that it would be of a help to each person. I pray that they would see the true truth of God and that they would be encouraged and equipped. They would think through these things. They would meditate on them, that they would be better for them. They would be closer to you and that you would help us, Lord, to Now, spend this time giving thanks to you and communing with you in remembering what Christ has done through his body and his blood, knowing that we are free in Christ, that we have been set free by the blood of the lamb, the truth that's in Christ. we pray now these elements that are set before us, that those who believe will take of them and that they would demonstrate their unity with the body of Christ here a body of Christ that is also called, called to reach the nations and to see your glory cover the globe. We pray, Heavenly Father, today, those who are still seeking and understanding, trying to find what this thing Christianity is, we pray they be compelled to believe. We pray the power of this gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ for sinners that you died for the ungodly will grip them and change them, that they will be saved right now, that they would look to Christ and be astonished by his teaching. May it be so, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So I've prayed already, but I will just re-emphasize the instructions, and that is this time of communion is for believers. You profess faith, you confess faith. You have to feel um, awkward if, if you're not there. We welcome you. We're so glad that you're here uh, just listening and, and uh, hearing the word proclaimed. But we, uh, we as a church just want to testify to whom we belong. And we want to invite you to belong. We want to invite you into Christ. But you must come one way. You must come the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ alone. You can't come through your works. You can't come by being a better person. You can't come by just simply joining a body. The only way you can come is by putting your faith in Christ. And that happens right here in the heart to your Lord. You can put your faith in Christ right where you're standing. You can call on him and say, save me as I'm a sinner. You only need to do two things majorly. And that is I'm a sinner. I didn't need to be convinced of that. I I realized I was a sinner, but I needed to know there was a God who would love me, who would save me and who would bring me in. And he would, and he did through Christ and Christ demonstrates his love to us. And so there should be no question. He loves you. He desires you. And he calls you. Will you come? Will you trust him? And if you have, we welcome you at the table. If you haven't, we ask you to spend time praying and calling on the Lord. He hears your prayers. We see that in Acts. He hears your prayers. So call on him. But I pray you be blessed this time. You come.